Today we come to the end of our eight-week study of the letter of 1 Peter. And again, we find the theme of this letter showing up in such a major, major way. Peter continues to encourage these beleaguered believers undergoing persecution for their faith in Christ. How I wish we could have been mice in the corner when this letter was read in the churches of Asia Minor. A letter coming from the well-known and beloved apostle Peter. And I wonder, were there tears, you know, amazed and, and, and just knowing that somebody was aware of their suffering? Uh, I wonder if there was renewed commitments to faithfully follow Jesus, even to the point of giving their lives for him. Who knows? We can only imagine Peter opens this last chapter with an exhortation that at first glance seems out of place, but as we look at it and come in, I think we'll see the reason why it's there. Let's go to the book of 1 Peter, chapter 5. First Peter, chapter 5, follow along while I read, starting at verse 1. Peter writes, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading glory, crown of glory, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now, remember that chapter and verse headings are not part of the original text. These are, these are added hundreds of years later. This is a letter. It's intended to be read just like it's being written, just flowing through the whole thing. And so Peter has just told them at the end of chapter 4, the judgment will begin with those who identify as followers of Jesus. And if they are hardly saved, Peter says, what can we say about those that refuse to believe in Jesus as the Christ? Now, it's not that salvation is barely possible. I mean, we know that nothing is impossible with God. But the cost was so great. It was so expensive that we can scarcely believe it's possible. And so Peter turns his thoughts at the end here to those spiritual shepherds who were entrusted with the responsibility of nurturing and shepherd and teaching these fellow Christians. It's to these men that Peter exhorts to carefully and faithfully shepherd the people, those under your care. I'm struck by how Peter identifies himself with these spiritual leaders. He certainly had the right to pull rank on them. He could have written a letter that would have felt like a superior writing to inferiors, but instead, as a shepherd himself, he calls himself a fellow elder, one among them who is called to care for the flock. Now, chapter 5 is about keeping on in humility. And what an example that Peter sets for them, for these elders. You know, I, I suppose that his failures during his time with Jesus on, his, on this earth 
and particularly at the end in Jerusalem, when he denied that he even knew the Lord, I would have to think that this stuff has never been far from his mind. And how discouraged and despairing it must have felt when he saw the risen Christ. The guilt and the shame that must have just come upon him at that moment. But then in one of his post-resurrection appearances, Jesus pulled Peter aside. And he asked Peter this penetrating question, Peter, do you love me? Three times he was asked that question. And three times Peter responds, Lord, you know that I love you. And what did Jesus say to him? Feed my sheep. Tend my sheep. Feed my lambs. And Jesus restored Peter to usefulness in the kingdom. And he gave him a task to perform. He was to be an under-shepherd of the good shepherd. Peter likewise exhorts those who have been appointed to the same task to do so faithfully. And before he details what this looks like, he does something else, though. He reminds them that he was a witness to the sufferings of Christ. Uh, He saw the rejection of Jesus as Messiah by the religious leaders of his day. He saw one of his fellow disciples sell Jesus out for 30 pieces of silver. I mean, he was so despondent after the denial, he didn't even walk to Golgotha to see his Lord crucified. But he certainly was aware of the sufferings of Jesus in those final hours. Why does he bring that up here? I think it's to lend some authority to his words. I think it was to put some weightiness here. I mean, he's told them that they should consider the sufferings of Christ as an example, as a model of submitting oneself to the Father's will, even if it meant suffering for Jesus' sake. And so he speaks firsthand of the reality of Jesus' sufferings, even to the point of death. And so he sets out for these leaders three contrasting attitudes or motivations that should characterize their leadership. First, it was not under compulsion, but willingly. Leaders should not feel strong-armed to serve in the church. The Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy about the qualifications to serve as an elder or an overseer. And so he writes this, this saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. One should be willing to serve in church leadership if they have a sense of calling to this task, if they meet the qualifications that Paul sets down in his letters to Timothy and to Titus. But they need to know that there's a cost involved. There's a price to be paid. There will be time. There will be effort. There will be prayer. There will be maybe even financial commitment. There certainly is an emotional commitment in leadership if you're going to serve others in the body of Christ. Second, Peter says, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Peter apparently was aware that many sought leadership for financial gain, but that should never be the reason to serve. Overseeing the flock of God is not just another job, another vocation. It's a calling to vocational ministry, to serving others, to spending oneself on behalf of those that God entrusts to you. The Apostle Paul defended himself seemingly constantly that he was not one of these charlatans. Uh, Speaking to the elders of Ephesus, 
He reminded them of his conduct when he was with them. And so he writes, I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who are with me. In all things, I've shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Then he says, not domineering, but as an example. The elder is to accept office not as a petty tyrant, but as a shepherd who lives and serves as an example to the sheep. Human nature is such that many, for many people, prestige and power are even more important to them and desirable to them than is money. And anyone who serves in spiritual leadership who serves for the purpose of personal exaltation, is doing an injustice and is failing the good shepherd immensely and is bringing great damage to the flock and to the name of Christ. Unfortunately, even today, there are many who are building their kingdom rather than God's kingdom. Peter says that those who lead, as he has said, will be rewarded when Jesus returns. These shepherds, again, never forget the context that Peter's writing about. These shepherds were putting their lives on the line publicly in defending and leading the flock among them. They would be the ones that would be out on the point of the spear in persecution. And Peter says it's not for naught. Then Peter adds a word, did you notice, to those who were younger to submit to their spiritual leaders. This was as important that they do that as it was for the leaders to lead in a godly way. The writer of the book of Hebrews talks about the way that the flock should respond to their spiritual leaders. Look at this. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Obey your leaders and submit to them. For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. May I step out of the text for a moment and say thank you, people of Knollwood, for letting me serve you with great joy? What a privilege it is. You've been an example to the body of Christ of what it is to bless those who lead you who minister to you spiritually. So I'm grateful to you and for you for that. I don't know. It seems the more I hear how rare that is. Now, a word to both leaders and the flock. Look back in 1 Peter chapter 5, the end of verse 5 again, where he says, Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. If the church as a whole, including leaders, are to enjoy the blessings of God, Peter says that there's a need for a spirit of humility among us. The Apostle Paul writes much about the same thing. Look at this from Ephesians 4. Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. 
to the believers in the city of Philippi, he writes, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, and this is one of those if conditionals in the Greek language, and if and there is, so if, or you might say since, there is encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, and there is, any participation in the Spirit, there is, any affection and sympathy, there is, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. That's the expression of humility within the body. When this is our attitude and our actions toward others within the church, we demonstrate our commitment to this one that we call Lord. We're to be fully assured that this is the will of God for those who are his children. God opposes those who exalt themselves, but he gives grace to the humble. Now, Peter goes on to write about humility within the context of suffering. He's not simply repeating what he's just said. There's something else here. There's something far more profound that we have to see. But let me read the text and then we'll come back and we'll unpack its meaning. So I'm back in 1 Peter 5, starting at verse 6. Peter says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. It's really important that we see humbling here in the context of suffering. And Peter brings the evil one, Satan, into the mix here and says that he is actively involved in suffering. He's described by Jesus as the one who came to steal and to kill and to destroy. Jesus calls him the father of all lies. And so what is he doing? to defeat the believer. Because I think if you look in the context, the why he brings them up here is he's involved in the context of suffering because of what he's doing. What is he doing? He's bringing things like discouragement. He's bringing a sense of defeat, of hopelessness. He's bringing a temptation to doubt and question the character of God, in particular his goodness and his providence and his love. He's trying to divert our attention away from Christ and onto our circumstances. He's trying to pervert our perspective so that we can't see the ultimate purpose in suffering and in trials. And so he seeks to paralyze and immobilize the believer's life and ministry. And what are we to do with this accuser of the brethren? What does Peter say? We're to resist. That word in the language of the New Testament means to withstand to be firm against someone's onset. Now, I want you to listen to what I'm saying. It does not mean to rebuke. 
There are some out in the Christian world that tell us that we need to rebuke the devil, that we need to pronounce judgment against him, even in the name of Jesus. Well, I want you to look at something that comes from the short little New Testament letter of Jude. And Jude says, but when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. The mighty archangel of the war of war, Michael, did not presume to rebuke Satan. What human being dares to presume to do what even he would not? We don't rebuke him, but we do resist him. What do we do? What do we do about that? Well, we refuse to listen to him. We refuse to hear his lies. We refuse to believe his lies. We choose to obey the voice of God rather than the voice of the evil one, the liar. And Peter says that we should comfort ourselves with the knowledge that we're not alone. This is one of those things that he's trying to encourage them with. Others struggle with suffering and trials just like we do. You know, for many of us, we know others who are suffering a lot more than we are. That are going through a lot more difficult times than we are. But we can be encouraged as they entrust themselves to God and trust Him in the midst of their trials. That's an encouragement to all of us. And so Peter exhorts us to do two things in the midst of these difficult times, whether it's persecution or whether it's simply the, the trials and difficulties of everyday life. The first thing we're to do is to humble ourselves. Now, this is really important. It's a profound truth that can only be applied if we are trusting God. In verse 5, Peter says we're to humble ourselves before others. That's action that we take on our part. But in relation to God, it's something different. In the language of the New Testament, this is in the passive voice. In other words, it means to let yourself be humbled. In other words, allow God to use suffering and trials for their desired purpose in your life, to refine you, to perfect you, to make you more like Jesus. Fanny Crosby, some of you may know that name, some of you may not, was one of the most prolific hymn writers in history. She wrote more than 8,000 hymns and gospel songs. More than 100 million copies were printed. She's also known for her teaching and for her rescue mission work. By the end of the 19th century, she was a household name. Some of her well-known hymns include To God Be the Glory, Pass Me Not, O Gentle Savior, He Hideth My Soul, Blessed Assurance, Jesus is Mine. What you might not know, though, is that when she was only six weeks old, she had an eye infection, and it was mistreated by a doctor, and she went blind. From six weeks on, she was blind her entire life. But let me share a few of her thoughts related to her perspective on this trial, on this suffering of blindness. She said, if I had a choice, I would still choose to remain blind. For when I die, the first face I will ever see will be the face of my blessed Savior. Another time she said, it seemed intended by the blessed providence of God that I should be blind all my life. And I thank him for the dispensation. If perfect earthly sight were offered to me tomorrow, I would not accept it. 
I might not have sung hymns to the praise of God if I'd been distracted by the beautiful and interesting things about me. Here's one of the verses that she wrote. Oh, what a happy soul am I, although I cannot see. I am resolved that in this world contented I shall be. How many blessings I enjoy that other people don't. To weep and sigh because I'm blind, I cannot and I won't. That perspective only comes from one who's allowed themselves to be humbled, to submit to the Father's will, and then to go through life rejoicing in what they do have. What does it mean to allow God to humble you? I think part of the answer to that question relates to how we respond to trials. Do we respond in the way that God says that we should? And that's all wrapped up in seeing how God wants to use difficult times in our lives. Let me give you some examples from Paul's writing in Romans chapter 5. He says, therefore, since we've been justified by faith, that is, being declared righteous, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him... We've also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Sounds a lot like Peter's perspective, doesn't it? When he writes in chapter 1, hope in, in the glory of God. But Paul goes on to say not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, not for suffering's sake. We're not called to be masochists here but knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. By the way, the word sufferings that Paul uses here, it's also in other translations called trials or tribulations. It's a word used to describe everyday difficulties. This isn't just the, you know, the, the big ones that hit us. Everyday trials, everyday difficulties, uh, everything that just sort of becomes a burr under the saddle. James talks about the same thing in his New Testament letter. Look what he writes. Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. I would suggest to you that only when we understand God's purposes in allowing trials into our lives, when we see it from his word, and we're willing to entrust our lives into him in those difficult times, will we ever allow God to humble us through our sufferings. Only then will we submit ourselves to the will of God. Only then are we able to even rejoice in difficult times because we believe and trust in a God who understands the whys even when we do not. We may not even find out the whys in this lifetime, but God says, I want you to rejoice in all things. That's the will of God for you in Christ Jesus, Paul writes in Thessalonians. And so we have to choose that perspective. It's not a perspective to me that comes easily or comes naturally. It's very counterintuitive when we're in difficult times to say, God, I thank you that you are yet in control and I will yield to you. I will, hum I will be humbled by you that I might learn what you have for me and see what you want to do in my life. Well, Peter goes on and says a second thing. He says, cast your anxieties on him 
Now, this isn't just resignation to things that are. We're encouraged to take our cares to Him. We're not asked to suffer in silence uh, or in passivity. Casting your anxiety is a very active process. And so through prayer, we come with our concerns before them. Read the lament psalms. Look at at, uh, David pouring his heart out to God. That's what we're called to do. Come with an honest and an open heart. Jesus said to his followers, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now here's the point. If you bear your burdens, he cannot. If you will not, he will. We need to write that into our minds, don't we? Because if we take these burdens on ourselves and feel that we are all alone, that God doesn't care, um, it's just going to kill you. But if you will go to him and lay these burdens at his feet. Now listen, you're still going to have to walk through them. My experience is that God doesn't just remove necessarily those issues from you. Oh, he may, and he certainly does. But God says, I want to walk with you through it. My presence and my peace will accompany you as you go through these things. And that's the reason Peter says that you can cast your anxiety upon him is because he cares for you. So that's the one thing you've got to know regardless of what you're going through is that God knows and God cares. And knowing that he's with you, upholding you by his powerful right hand should give you the courage then to be grateful for all things and to count it all joy. Even to rejoice in your circumstances because God's ultimate purpose will be accomplished in your life if you entrust yourself to him. And that's why Peter concludes his exhortations with this statement of promise. And after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. God has promised that everything that he either directs or allows into your life, he will use for his glory and for your ultimate good. You may not see it right now, but do you know him well enough to trust him, to entrust your life to him? That's the nature of faith. It's trusting in a faithful God, willing to wait for understanding when we just cannot see it now. I want to end our study of this powerful letter with an encouragement to do three things. Maybe nothing else if you walk away from this letter, this study, but things I've mentioned several times. When you face difficult circumstances, sometimes to the point of despair, number one, trust God. Let him be the anchor of your soul. There's no one else to go to that has your back, that has your best in mind. Number two, do what is right. As you know, the way that God wants you to live, don't give up, keep doing right. And lastly, keep on keeping on. You know what? We're often tempted to quit, aren't we? Throw in the towel. But God says, listen, I'm going to be faithful. It's not how strong your perseverance is, it's my perseverance with you, taking you through deep waters, 
through the fire, but I'm going to be there. And you're coming. And his deliverance is going to be, in the end, ultimately, it's going to be to take you home with him. That's where eventually we're all going, if we've trusted in Christ. Well, what a great letter as we bring it to an end. Would you pray with me? God, thank you so much for preserving this letter. Thank you for Peter's encouraging words to those that were going through difficult times. And would you encourage us? Lord, I know that there are people in our midst that go through difficult times. For some, it might just be a one-off thing. For others, it is just ongoing. Would you encourage them with this letter? Would you encourage them to keep on keeping on? Would you encourage them to continue to entrust themselves to you? Would you encourage them to continue to do what is right? And may we, Lord, know how to come alongside those that are going through difficult times and point them to you and to your care and to your goodness and to your love. And God, would you meet people where they are than in their need? For Jesus' sake and in his name I pray, amen.